risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Engage. There are three things to remember about being a starship captain. Keep your shirt tucked in, go down with the ship, and never abandon a member of your crew. I don't care if the odds are against us. If we're going to lose, then we're going to go down fighting. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. What a piece of work is man. It is a tale told by an idiot. Make it so. Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Boldly Going Podcast, a podcast where three guys talk about every episode of Star Trek that's ever been made. I'm your host, Alec. I'm Bailey. And I'm Ethan. And today we're here to talk about the Corbomite Maneuver. This episode was the first of the actual episodes that was done after the first two pilots. It aired all the way back on November 10th, 1966, if you can believe that. It was the third of 80 episodes produced for the original series, but it was the 10th episode to air. I looked that up, I was a little curious about the discrepancy, and it turned out the reason this episode aired much later than it was intended was the large amount of visual effects took several months to complete, and the producers had to air, they had to delay the air date twice before they broadcast as the 10th episode. Jerry Soule wrote this episode, and it was directed by Joseph Sargent who did a great job with the directing on this episode, by the way. There's a couple of really great camera shots. So I looked it up to see if he directed any more episodes, but he did not, mm. which is too bad. So we will get into what I think is a fantastic episode of Star Trek, but I'm curious to get uh, both your general thoughts before we dive into it. So, Ethan, why don't you kick this off? What do you think of the Corbomite Maneuver? I have some complicated feelings on the Corbomite Maneuver. I'll say ahead of time that it is a great science fiction episode. It does an excellent job at the premise of the show. It's a wonderful setup. I do think that, that um, the gambit itself is somewhat questionable. I, At the end of the show, I didn't feel as good about the um, eponymous Corbomite maneuver itself. Also, Space Hobo children are going to drastically reduce the grade on this um, episode, <laughs> just so you got a spoiler ahead of time. If Clint Howard is ever listening, I'm very sorry, Mr. Howard, but you are a very ugly-looking man. <laughs> And you make an uglier baby. <laughs> Bailey, what about you? I I enjoyed it. Uh, I liked it better than the last episode. That's uh, for sure. But I I don't want to be too flippant with it, just in case, um, because we have a long ways to go. So and fair, fair enough. So a couple of general things we can discuss before we get into the episode proper. First, we finally got the uniforms back and they're great am i allowed to say i missed the turtlenecks a bit you are allowed to say you missed the turtlenecks but you're so wrong <laughs> okay the colors the right colors are nice to see that's a huge improvement the red like scotty in his red Spock in his blue yeah. um we have the skirt uniforms are finally here just demonstrated on two of our lead female characters yeoman rand who will be with us for about eight or nine episodes yeah. and it's um, also uniform. <laughs> it is a uniform. <laughs> it's 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 all the same. <laughs> not not different zippers everywhere else. Well, except for that one guy who's wearing like a fishing vest. True. But we'll talk about him when we get here because I couldn't stop seeing the fishing vest guy in the hallway scene. Uhura is introduced for the first time, and so is Bones. 
but we'll get to both of those characters in due time. We also have Mr. Sulu, who's now in his proper position on the ship. Yes, I looked that up. Sulu has been transferred into command division because the producers realized that they needed someone to sit in that chair every episode, but they didn't need an astrophysicist in every episode. So they just bumped Sulu over because that role was more necessary. Which, that's the role we all know Sulu best as, not as a guy who goes, you know, it's like exponential math. You get a penny, double it every day, a month you'll be a millionaire. (laughs) (laughs) What did math ever do to you? Um, Let's talk about Lieutenant Dave Bailey, who's our new um, navigator for this episode. Borderline treasonous. Ouch. Wow, okay. Bailey, defend your namesake. Bailey. Honestly, I kind of got confused. I looked around every time I heard his name. Uh. (laughs) He's a much better actor than Gary Mitchell, though. That is true. That is true. It's all a matter of perspective. I enjoyed Mitchell for different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Walking freezer unit. (laughs) Hey, just because I'm on the bridge doesn't mean it's not time for picking up chicks. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, Mitchell. It'll take a long time before you fade from my heart. Oh, uh, he, he's got that special place. You know, Abrams, J.J. Abrams is doing that, did that reboot, and he really missed the opportunity to put Mitchell and Denner in those yeah. 2009 movies. <laughs> Could have gotten, um, I don't know, someone to play Mitchell with equal gravitas, like maybe Tommy Wiseau. No, 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 they were killed <laughs> at the very first scene of the first movie. Okay. Blew up, so there I go. did not do it! <laughs> Getting off track about how delightful Tommy Wiseau as Gary Mitchell would be. Um, this is one of those episodes where I was really glad I shilled out for the remastered DVDs because the opening shot of the ship is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I was drawn right into it when it opened up. I thought, wow, what a great shot. Looks awesome in high gear. Mm-hmm. And the camera work on the bridge is very, very good in the opening cold open yeah. with the crane going around. Very high-tech Star Trek. Well, I actually really think that some of the set design is interesting because you can tell that a lot of their set design influences later science fiction because if you look at the panels on the uh, the, um, the desk of various other things on the bridge, you'll actually sort of see familiarity with what you'll see later in um, Star Wars A New Hope, like on the Death Star, those sort of like square buttons and flashing patterns. It's neat to see sort of how like earlier science fiction trickles into later stuff. Or even something like Mass Effect where on the bridge of the Normandy they put the kind of command position right in the center of the bridge, which is a thing that Star Trek did first way back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So the cold open starts. It's interesting because this is the first episode of the show that's going to be done the first. And it doesn't start with Kirk. Kirk's not in the cold open. No, it's just the rest of the crew doing their actual job mapping yeah. the stars and, you know, bringing a little bit of um, reality into fiction. I like when shows do mundane things to show that Oh, wait, we actually have real jobs. Yeah. And so right out of the gate, we see Sulu is now helmsman. He looks great in the yellow, sitting by his chair doing his things. Um, Uhura is there. She's at the comm station, though she's wearing gold. Mm -hmm. She's going to wear gold for this episode and the next episode as well. And then she'll be switched to her red, and that's like the last costume change we make. Uh, We see our guest star for the week, Mr. Bailey, who's taken up the position left by our dear departed friend, Gary Mitchell. Uh, May he forever rest in peace with his stupid silver contacts. (laughs) And Spock is back to his blue, and Spock looks great. They toned his makeup down just a little bit. This is the Spock I know. He barely raises his voice in this episode. In fact, he points out that Lieutenant Bailey raises his voice. No need to raise your voice. Quite unnecessary. (laughs) I wrote that line down verbatim. I paused it so I could get it down. But they're doing some Star Trek stuff. They're mapping the stars. And uh, Bailey makes the important point that this is the farthest anyone's ever been out. Again, really setting that idea that in the original series compared to TNG or later Star Treks, 
This is real frontier stuff. They're all out by themselves. How does that statement mesh with the premise of the last episode, which was reaching the galaxy's edge and hitting the universal radiation? Um, who's correct? Or does it really matter? I Well, I would say I don't think it really matters. I think... Yeah, like I said, I like the premise, even though it's a little kooky. But then if you remember, they find that plant station on the other side of the galaxy's edge. So maybe they think of galaxies in that first episode as like burrows in the neighborhood. I mean, if you want to be real technical, you could say something like, well, this is the other side of that. But it, it really doesn't matter. They're in this unknown region of space that nobody's in. And the bridge is vastly improved. By the lack of that stupid lamp that was on Kirk's desk in the pilot episode that he talked into. I am talking to a lamp. It's gone. Although, let me tell you, later in the episode, we'll see new earpieces, I think, but they look like honey spools that you'd use to get, like, honey out of the jar and all those classic stuff. Those are the ones Except we'll in their ears. I like those compared to the rotary telephone from the first episodes. <laughs> and that's the headpieces. Um, is going to be wearing that for, like, 90% of her appearances for the mm. rest of the show. And Spock wears it actually a decent amount. Although, speaking of Spock, doesn't he look great in that captain's chair? He really does. Because this is, I think, I don't think we see Spock take command of the Enterprise in the pilot. Which is, you think I remember because we talked about this last week. But this is the first time we see Spock take command when Kirk's on the bridge. So this subtly establishes that Spock is the second officer on the Enterprise. He, sorry, first officer. Ooh, don't mind that nomenclature there. So Spock and the crew encounter the GameCube logo for the first time. <laughs> I, I put a one-by-one Rubik's Cube. <laughs> okay. And the remastered version, the cube actually looks okay. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I was not watching the remastered version. <laughs> There's something that's going to be ongoing through the, the episode where the GameCube logo is sometimes paired with ominous music and sometimes not. They use that thing a lot in this episode. Yeah, the, the score is a, le- a little less... Effective. The first time I heard it, I liked it, but like the 18th time I heard it, I was a little (laughs) less impressed. (laughs) And sometimes it didn't actually correlate to how tense the moment was, which was the most amusing part of the whole thing. There's a particularly like notable example when Kirk looks on it in like a tiny screen from the from the med bay without a shirt on, but we'll get to that. (laughs) And then he just walks around the ship without a shirt on. Oh yeah, I wrote that down. You mean his quarterly checkup, quote unquote? Oh, I jumped ahead just a little bit. But we will get to that because I have some thoughts on the quarterly checkup. But we all mentioned this. I think we all wrote down that Bailey goes, oh, man, it's a cube or something <laughs> like that. And Spock says, oh, it's quite unnecessary to raise your bo- voice, Mr. Bailey. <laughs> then he orders them to go to condition alert, which is one of those little things. Where it's like we're getting very close, but they're just ironing out the details. Mm-hmm. Um, you all who've watched this show religiously like I did will know that it's typically a yellow or a red alert, not just condition alert. But I believe this is the only time in a Star Trek where it just says, go to alert, instead of a specific one. Then we have the theme song. If you were watching this on television originally, back in 1966, this would have been the first episode that had William Shatner's narration spaced The Final Frontier. Mm. But since we're watching it now, they've retroactively added that title screen to everything. And then we come back from the cold open... And Kirk has hits us with a captain's log, which I think putting the captain's log after the cold open is a really effective storytelling device. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Would you rather the cold open start with the captain's log, or would you like having a little bit of action first, and then Kirk almost goes back and explains what led us to that point? Well, I think it's I think it's important to have a hook beforehand, and I think that that really it sets it sets the scene, it sets the show. 
this episode up to to be what it what it needs to be, and then it's good for uh, exposition a little bit afterwards. I'm a big fan of narrative openings, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to say that sometimes I really do appreciate having a nice sort of orderly opening like a captain's log at the beginning of the show, just because it creates some familiarity episode to episode. However, there, it's always conditional. Like if it doesn't feed into the actual storytelling, then sometimes you can move it to different places in the show where it more be more appropriate. Here, Kirk is very busy doing his quarterly checkup, so it doesn't make sense for him to be doing his captain's log right off the bat. So, um, switch. As an aside, the captain's log is a brilliant storytelling device. It's a great way to dump exposition on the audience without making it feel like you're dumping. I mean, if you think about the captain's log as a storytelling device, it's literally Kirk just saying, hi, we're here, we're doing this. But it fits so naturally into the world and into the story. It's a lot more natural. Like, I've watched a decent amount of television from the 60s on DVD, and every episode of every show would have them go to break. And then when it came back, someone would go, I can't believe you just said that thing that you just said before the break. But it feels very stilted and unnatural, whereas Kirk's captain's logs, which fulfill a similar function, sound natural. They sound proper. He's a military officer. He's filling out a report that'll go to yeah. Starfleet. So I, I like that. Now we can talk about the first appearance of Dr. Leonard H. Bones McCoy and the quarterly checkup. Ethan, you said Bones is your favorite character now, so why don't you start talking about Kirk on the Stairmaster? Uh, I don't really care about Kirk on the Stairmaster. What I care about is Bones <laughs> on the side. Bones has some of the best dialogue in this show. Um, I love that he has such a history with Kirk, and you can tell like from their first interaction that they're people who know each other, they're people who have gone through a lot together, they're people who can call each other out on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to play a lot into the show. As I said, I haven't seen much of the um, of the first series, so I-, I knew that I'd probably like Bones coming into it, but seeing sort of the things that I hope to see um, in a character are, are really, it's really great. Um, some of his lines are just pure gold. What am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? <laughs> I, had um, I had to go through go back a few times because I, he, his, his accent wasn't really helping me a lot, so I, I went back and I actually had to look it up. But I'm, I'm looking forward to all the moments where I'll be able to record throughout the show all the different lines he does use. I have a feeling that many more are coming, and I'm very eager. <laughs> this is very close to Bones' catchphrase, I'm a doctor, not a blank. Yes. He says, what am I, a doctor or a moon show operator? <laughs> which had very little relation to the situation, which left me wondering, why choose that one in particular? <laughs> oh, well. So we don't miss Dr. Piper at all. Are you kidding me? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Bailey's out, here. Bailey's out here with his Justice for Piper shirt. <laughs> All I want to know is what happened, Piper. Who yeah. cares? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. What's amazing to me is it took Spock about an episode to get to become Spock. Yeah. Bones is Bones literally the first minute on the screen. He's so darn charming and likable. Like he gives his little smile. That's very true. And he's like, ah, oh, Jim, work up a sweat. It's good for you. It's, like, yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's so immediately likable. Plus, you get to see Kirk with his shirt off. <laughs> Shatner looked great back then. Like, Which, like, even seeing this one part of the series, this one episode, I can already tell, and maybe this is going to be a bit of a spit take too early, but oh well, that they probably dropped the character of Bones a little too hard when it came to the modern movies. Um, I don't see much of what of Bones in the, in the modern Abrams movies. And that's a all. huge mistake, because... Yeah. For both of you who don't know this show super well, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are kind of the triumvirate of the yeah. show. 
as the show goes on, it's really about these three characters. And if you just watch the Abrams movies, you never know. No, oh, yeah. And that, to me, is part of the reason why I struggle with that, because it shows me that Abrams didn't really care about Yeah, but it, 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 even more than that, like, the fact that Bones and Abrams stuff seems to be, like, more angry, whereas Bones in here is more, like, smug, which is far more enjoyable. He's a good old country doctor. <laughs> yeah, good times. So, I'm enjoying Bones a lot. Also, as an aside, I love the medical scrub uniform that McCoy wears when he's not, when he's in the med bay. Yeah. I like how it's clearly made of another material. I like how it's cut at the sleeves. It's just... It's a good detail. I, I like yeah. that. I like that. You almost thought he was a medical professional, but huh. you know. <laughs> That's one of those things where it's like I don't always think about it. But I'm glad that they did it. Are we gonna ignore the fact though that Bone may or may not have like committed a direct violation of his responsibility by muting the red alert that came into the sick face so Kirk could finish his physical? A man has to do his job. <laughs> this was an emergency situation. Bones could clearly see the light going from where he is, but he's like Finish the Stairmaster, Jim, and then you can find out what may or may not try to kill us. It's his physical. It's quarterly physical. Exactly. If Kirk isn't in shape for the ladies, what's going to happen? Armageddon. Yeah. So then Kirk is like, I'm on my way to the bridge, because Sue calls him. I says, Captain, there's a thing. No, Spock calls him. You know, Spock here. Oh, Spock is the first-rate officer in this. He is fantastic. Like, Kirk just throws out, like, all hailing frequencies. Affirmative. Bridge officers assembled, already done. And then he, as soon as he shows up on the bridge, Kirk, Spock also has his full scientific analysis ready. So mm -hmm. Spock is just on things. Kirk's great. Yeah, Kirk comes out. He's like, do I have time to get changed? Or should I come out without my shirt on? And Spock's like, no, it's not a legal situation. Go put a shirt on. <laughs> Kirk walks down the hallway and we see a guy in a fishing vest. <laughs> Some random crewman that I don't remember. And I've watched this episode probably like seven or eight times. But I was really struck by the dude in the yeah. fishing vest walking by. <laughs> thought, man, I hope we never see that guy again. But boy, was I wrong, because we're going to see him a lot throughout this serious? episode. Oh, this episode. I thought you were going to say he was a serious oh. staple, and I'm like, ah, oh, I fishing vest guy. I, I would be okay with that. I want an expanded universe. I want 12 novels about fishing vest guy and why he got to wear a fishing vest. <laughs> he was going fishing. Yeah, apparently. You know, he's got to get space. <laughs> space fishing. So we have the, the setup. Once again, we see the GameCube logo, and yeah. everyone's going to give a report. And I like this sequential reporting sequence because it's just, again, it shows the, the actual function of the ship. It, it's, it's like it's each, a structure. Each station yeah. has a report. Each yeah. station does its job. They're concise. They're, they're exactly what's needed to be known, and, and that's Except it. Except Scotty, who it, doesn't know what the heck to tell uh, you. Excuse me. <laughs> this is my, my meme quote for the episode is, that's a solid cube. <laughs> That's a solid cube. You know what? Thanks, Scott. That is absolutely what I needed to know. Do you um, have an opinion? Can I buy an opinion? Oh, I'd sell you one if I had it. <laughs> but Bailey and I were talking uh, before you got here about Spock's best line in this episode, which happens right before Kirk arrives on the bridge. When Bailey's trying to justify himself, he says, you know, Mr. Spock, uh, just because I raised my voice didn't mean I was scared or I can't do my job. It's just this thing we humans have called an adrenaline gland. Spock says, oh, sounds really convenient. Inconvenient. Maybe you should have that removed. <laughs> Such a good line. Sulu says, don't try to cross mental swords with Spock or you'll get cut to pieces every time. <laughs> Bailey gets all mad. <laughs> There's this great over-the-camera shoulder of Kirk when he enters the bridge. Mm. Very, very well done. Uh, definitely a handheld. It shakes a little bit, and it's doubly notable yeah, in the remaster, but it's not too bad. And it's a great shot. You don't see a lot of it. It gives you a really unique view of the bridge, yeah. which I always like. Then everyone has the report, as Ethan pointed out. Spock's ready to go, proving that he is the right man to be XO. Like I said, full scientific analysis. Scott says it's a cube, and he doesn't know what the heck it is. 
That's unfair because he knows it's a cube very confidently. This is going to be a little bit of a reoccurring thing where Scotty is a mechanical genius when it comes to the Enterprise, and if you give him like a stick of gum and a <laughs> toothpick, he can repair the warp core. But if you want him to scan literally anything that's not the Enterprise, he'll always say, I don't know, whatever. And he's like vaguely resentful of the fact that they ask. Uh, I do want to point out that uh, Spock, she said about his mother being from Earth. Yes. Actually, instead of saying, one of my ancestors. That's a bit later, but that's a great little exchange, because, yeah. again, as you pointed out, they're already figuring it out. Because yeah. in a later scene, when talking about Balok, Scott Fox says, he reminds me of my father. Which, when we meet Sarah, he'll be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently yeah. he's true. And Scotty says, I haven't helped your mother. And Spock says, she was actually considered herself a very fortunate Earth woman. Oh, she likes some Vulcan. Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> Wait until you get to Star Trek Enterprise, and there's a Lady Vulcan on the show, and I'll change your mind real hard. Where was I? I? Where? <laughs> Boom! Oh, and then Bailey says, hey, Captain, we should blow this thing up. Totally ignoring the fact that he's just a guy on the bridge. Spock's given his opinion. Scott has given his opinion. You know, the, the heads of the department. Mr. Bailey's like, let's blow this up. And Kirk has a great line. He says, well, I'll remember that, Mr. Bailey, when this becomes a democracy. <laughs> There's a lot of savage in this episode. It's good. Kirk puts him in his place. Then we cut to a break. We come back from commercial break. We have a lunchroom meeting yep. where everyone's drinking coffee out of coffee pots. And 18 hours have passed. I, I remember seeing that scene. And it kind of looked a little weird. Like they were being extra slow in their movements. I don't know if that was just me. But that's just one note I had. Maybe. I mean, they're trying to convey the idea they've been sitting here for 18 hours. Because every time they try to move... In any direction, the cube follows them and gets in front of the GameCube logo. Gets yeah. in front of their face. Spock says, well, there's only two things it could be. It's either a warning boy, which, spoiler alert, it is a warning boy. And fun fact, they'll encounter warning boys in space at least one more time. In one of my favorite episodes, Spectre of the Gun, but that's not for a while. It says, or it's like flypaper, which it's not. But they don't know that. Kirk says, let's do a thing. Well, they, he says, recommend sticking around. And he says, it would make us appear weak. And I'm like... Okay, is that the main concern for a ship? Whether you appear weak or whether you're going to die? Oh, well. Just a little bit of a thing, sort of. It's almost as foreshadowing what's going to come, but... There's another scene where Bailey is borderline insubordinate, because he's like, let's do this. Kirk says no, and he's like, no, we should do this. <laughs> and Kirk gives him an order, is about to give him an order, and he says, you know, phaser rank, stand by. Like, he assumes Kirk's order before Kirk gives it. Because Kirk is going to tell him to lay in a course to leave, and he's already trying to tell the phasers to blow this thing up. Because that's what he's decided to do. And Kirk has to shake the finger again and be like, Hey, Bailey, I didn't tell you to do that. Mm. And then he tries to... He said, did I ask for an explanation, Mr. Bailey? It just shuts him down again. They could have called this episode Star Trek. Bailey gets shut down maneuver. But that was bad. That was a terrible joke. So they try to leave at quarter speed. As opposed to, again, in later Star Trek, they'll call this impulse. When they're in the... Subwarp speed, but same principle. Doesn't they try to go back at quarter speed? This is the only scene where Spock yells a little bit compared to the previous episode where every line Spock had was, Hey, you, it's me, the rational Spock, one of your earth emotions. Look how pointy my eyebrows are. <laughs> but in this episode, it's like he's shouting to be heard, but it's still a little weird for Spock. Uh, I don't know. I think there's a certain pragmatism behind raising your voice when the noise around you is getting louder and i think that's that's an important difference is he's not doing it because he's getting emotional he's doing it because it's the right r response to the situation 
I think and, that that's allowed. And that's a fair point. It's just interesting because for most of the rest of the show, Spock doesn't raise his voice at all. Even when situations are tense, he always speaks like firmly, but never like, radiation is going to kill us. But I think under those circumstances, it is justified. We have another. Sh- we have one of these great shots of the hallway shaking. We see the vest guy again. He's right in front of the camera. Again, with his vest, with all his pockets. Who knows what he's doing? Not me. I like um, one of the uh, subtle things in this sequence of scenes about with the probe and, and speed and radiation. Kirk is almost watching Lieutenant Bailey as much as the probe. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of shots of him glancing back to Bailey and monitoring the situation. And I actually think that's a very good establishing um, character moment for him as a captain. Because as a captain, he knows the weakest link in his crew. And he's, he's keeping an eye on both the situation and, and the people who are most likely to crack first. Mm-hmm. So it shows that he's more than just someone who's um, a responder to situations or someone who's exclusively egotistical. He's, he's, he actually has a handle on what it means to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And, point. and Bailey leaves Sulu his MVP moment, where Sulu not once, not twice, but three times has to also run Bailey's station. Like, Sulu is Sulu's working overtime over yeah. there. He's like, Bailey, lock the phasers. Bailey just sits there, staring as the radiation <laughs> builds up, and staring. And then finally they blow up the cube because they have no choice. They tried to escape. As they tried to leave, the boy followed them. And as it followed them, it started to emit radiation that would kill them. So they blow up the, sh- the cube. We get a great shot of the Enterprise shaking. Yeah. Very classic Star Trek. We see the people in the hallway shake back and forth both ways. Vest guy's there. Everybody shakes on the bridge. Very classic Star Trek. But it's done some minor damage to the ship. Nothing too serious. Kirk is a little bit concerned about how slow the efficiency was there. And he's like, hey, everyone, let's do some drills until we are ready to go. He kind of dresses down the crew a little bit. You know, Sulu, you were a little bit slow on this. Bailey, you were way slow on this. Get it together, people. Uh, We don't want to die. There's a great Kirk-Spock bit where they talk about what to do, which shows really the friendship between the two of them. But I think this is also where we first hear of their um, sort of premise or mission to seek out and contact alien life. And I think it's just important to note that that's... We're going to have to evaluate everything the Enterprise does in the future of the series against that yeah. mission. And as people who are evaluating episodes for both consistency and quality, like they've set out a premise of like, this is what we want our ship to be about. There we go. That's that's what we need to look at. Them it's for. a delightful interaction where Spock has that line where he says, are you asking me for a logical solution? And Kirk goes, no, no, I'm not. Spock says then, you know, why are you wasting your time asking me questions of things you've already answered? <laughs> and Kirk is that charming little smile that he does and says, well, Spock, it gives me some emotional certainty. Like that little banter, that, that great friendship between the two characters that will continue to yeah. always grow. Now, before we advance too far past this, I did have a question I wrote down. Does navigation always handle weapons? That it, seems to be such a weird connection. Like a lot of the jobs on the bridge make sense. Navigation and weapons, not so much. So they're going to make it a much simpler for the future shows where weapons falls under tactical. But in the original series, navigation and operation seem to share that duty. Mm. So in the later, when Chekhov shows up in season two and he takes the permanent position of uh, navigator, he's one who's heavily involved in that and Sulu continues to be. So for the rest of this show, it's the guys at those two stations are involved in the aiming and the firing of the weapons, which does seem a little odd from a split, but that's just the way it is in this first show. Mm. And they're in charge of the phasers and the torpedoes, which, again, as an interesting little side note, this episode is the first time that the Enterprise fires its phasers, uh, that we see the ship fire its phasers when it uses them to blow up the boy, because we don't see it in Where No Man Has Gone Before, 
and in the eight other episodes that aired before this one, the Enterprise doesn't fire its phasers then either. So whether you're watching this on DVD in the order they were made or on TV in the order they came out, this is still the first time the Enterprise fires its phasers. Mm. We have that interaction, and Kirk gets everyone to do drills. Then Kirk gets on the elevator with Bones, and we have another great Kirk Bones bit. And I believe this is the first time he calls him Jill. And he's the first character to do that. Yes, and it's also the same conversation in which they mention how far back they go. Um, so it's it's nice to see, as, as I've said before, that kind of relationship that's going to give us a lot more depth. Yeah. And just the fact that Bones seems to be starting to call Kirk out on things. They're already got that yeah. perfect Bones-Kirk dynamic, because Bones is seeking out the emotional problems. He's saying, Kirk... You know, Jim, you promoted Bailey too fast. This is your fault that he's not ready. You yeah. saw Bailey, you reminded him of yourself, so you think, oh, he can handle this because I can handle this, and that was going to crack under the pressure, and Kirk kind of poo-poos Bones' opinion on that. It's mm-hmm. like he doesn't really care much what Bones has to say on that. But that's okay, because Bones basically immediately gets the better of him with salad. <laughs> <laughs> they go into Kirk's yeah, quarters so while listening to the drill, and they're continuing to argue about, like, not argue, but debate banter. debate and banter about what they should do. Spock says they got a 96% on their drill score, and Kirk says, well, let's go for that 100. And Bones asks what they're going to do with that extra 4%. They back and forth a bit. And then we have the first appearance of Yeoman Rand. Mm-hmm. Yeoman Rand, who yep. is famous for her beehive hairstyle. Yes. Who will be back for a good chunk of episodes in the first season. She brings Kirk's food. And because Kirk hasn't eaten yet, McCoy put him on salad because he has to lose weight. That's <laughs> amazing, by the way. And Kirk goes, I hate salad. And, and then proceeds to eat with his hands. <laughs> Not only that, but he insults the yeoman who brought it to him. And I'm, I wonder if this is going to be a trend, but in this episode, Kirk evaluates the yeoman exclusively on the things that she brings him. Here's the salad, and she is not in his good books. Later, it's going to be coffee that's been prepared even when the power's out. And everyone's going to be like, whoa, that's awesome! So, <laughs> poor Yeoman. Poor Yeoman um, Janice. Janice yeah. Rand. Yeah. And they have this great dynamic. She leaves, and Kirk is like, when I get my hands on that jerk who gave me a female Yeoman, I'm going to be so mad. And Bones verbatim says, what, you don't trust yourself? Bones literally says, you don't have to sleep with her, you know? Like, just be a professional. <laughs> Kirk gets all embarrassed and is like, I have a woman I have to worry about. Her name's Enterprise. And Bones is like, yeah, whatever, man. Like, just let the woman do her job. <laughs> As I said, I like Bones a lot. <laughs> He's great in this. Then, fortunately, uh, an alien sphere arrives, and Kirk doesn't have to eat that salad with Bones watching. And he uh, throws his napkin down what, on what top What was the of name it. of the ship, by the way? Oh, the name of the ship was the Viserys. You know, I think the medical community would actually call it Staphylococcus aureus, um, because that looks exactly like... Staff. Staff infection. It's it's exactly. Golden Spears. Big problem. Yep. Um, so, man, uh, that's one of the things that just sort of had me weird in this one, where it was just seeing, like, a clustery ship that's, that sort of resembles a, an infection. It's just like, okay. See, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm just a guy. I love the design of the ship. It's so alien and weird. And it looks great in the remaster. I thought it did a great job with a sense of scale as... The Enterprise came up to it, and it just Tractor kept getting moon. larger and larger and larger. That's no moon. That's a space station. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I can understand that if, you know, it looked like a staph infection, that would really take you out of it. Yeah, although, for clarity from Elsers, not a doctor. Long story. But, ultimately, I think that the ship did convey that wonderful sense of scale. It was fun to see them encounter something yeah. that just... 
brought them yeah. beyond. Well, sort of they the made scope them the look ownership. small and and just made the universe look so big. Because they get towed in. Like yeah. it grabs on the tractor beam and it fills the screen even five thousand meters away. And Kirk says, "Hey Bailey, why don't we minimize so we can see the whole thing?" And Bailey just sits there staring at. Him. Kirk tells him three times. He's like, "Bailey, zoom out." So Sulu leans across and zooms out for Bailey so they can see the whole thing. Wow. No and, mercy on this panel. And this is the first time Spock utters the iconic line, fascinating, where mm-hmm. everyone else is kind of a little bit weirded out by this thing, and Spock Pretty says, scared, yeah. fascinating. And part of the way that this famous part of how Spock, his character, is going to be is actually because of director Joseph Sargent. Because Leonard Nimoy got the line where he was supposed to act like he was frightened when he saw it. And Sergeant said, why don't instead be different? Be the scientist. Just calculating, like, this doesn't bother you the way it bothers everyone else because you're too interested in. And that is another key piece of Spock's character that was born during shooting rather than during recording. And there's a lot of bits like that. And then we get to see the captain of the ship and he looks just like sexy squidward and i love it <laughs> it looks even better when they later on when they're actually on their on his small ship what do you think of the baylock puppet i love the baylock puppet. you mean megamind <laughs> i've never <laughs> seen megamind yeah i i only like i i only liked it like we said earlier before recording i only liked it because of the fact that it was like this looks really bad, and then it <laughs> and is. later it's it, it is bad. Yeah, that's a genius development. Did you like the sex Squidward puppet? I had like no feelings on the puppet itself. Actually, I, I really didn't have any kind of emotional response to that. I did enjoy its speaking pattern. Yeah. Um, my favorite quote: "Ten Earth time periods <laughs> known as, as minutes." Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, the familiar time of my native people. <laughs> Speak to me. I wrote that down. <laughs> the, he says, "Um, oh, I wrote it down." He says, "I will give you ten of your Earth time periods known as minutes." <laughs> it's it's great. But on on the more real side of it, I love countdowns that actually give you a time period but also track with it through the show to help you actually keep pace with yeah. the ongoing development like part one of the first is 10 minutes and then it's eight and then it's seven four and a half four and it actually gives you a bit more context because when you have a countdown that's something about like 10 minutes but it lasts for like 20 or 25 as the you can viewer, tell. you're starting to get a little out of it because the times don't match yeah. up. And if it goes on too long, you actually get a bit of dissonance with the story because you're like, they're doing too much in this time period or those kinds of things. But whereas if it actually is counting down as you go, it helps pace a countdown sequence out very well. Yeah. Um, and that's something I'll give a lot of credit to in this sequence is that by actually going through and, and giving the audience cues as to like how far are they into this, how much longer do you have to go? Um, it creates a better situation than something I'm going to mention later. This is a scene where Spock admits that he admires Baylock and says, oh, he's got this really great ship. He seems like a pretty cool dude, which nobody else seems to appreciate. But again, Bob Bailey's <laughs> crap in his pants. <laughs> yeah, Bailey loses his mind and has to be removed from the bridge <laughs> by McCoy. But let's be real. After Baylock tells everyone they're going to die, make Kirk, peace with your Earth God. <laughs> Kirk actually does another great captain thing. The, before anything else, before he can take an action, he puts out an announcement to the crew Love mm-hmm. it. to calm them down and give them focus and yeah. that kind of thing. Like that's that's leadership, because a, sh- a lesser show might t- be tempted to just focus on the bridge shoot because that's where everything's happening. Yeah, 
but this is this is science fiction. You're supposed to be telling a convincing story of a crew encountering the unknown. So you do have to have those moments of focusing on the other people who are impacted by these events going on. Kirk's a great captain. This episode really drives yeah. that home. And the balls on that man. <laughs> I love it. So after, Almost as big as the balls on that ship. Oh, yeah. They're talking about how it's like 10 million kilometers long. That's how long uh, Kirk has to yeah. sit down. We have the bit where they try to send the black... Again, smart storytelling. If we're yeah. not going to get out of this, at least we can warn everybody. They send out the black box, but Balok's ship destroys it. No yeah. way, Jose, he says, a black box for you. Then he's like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? The time counts down. Kirk and Spock talk, because Kirk is racking his brain, trying to figure a way to get out of this. He talks to Spock, and this is the first time Spock calls him Jim. Mm -hmm. This is the only time in this episode Spock calls him Jim, and Spock calls him Jim on a very sporadic basis. And the more you get to know these characters, the more impactful when he does that it is, because Spock has to keep his emotions in check. He's got to keep himself balanced. And whenever he calls him Jim, it's a little bit of him admitting like how much he cares about Kirk. And here, when they are both probably about to die and get blown up by this giant spaceship, it's that subtle little character moment where it's like, hey, it's been real, homie. And I yeah. like that. And Spock says, the great and Nimoy crushes his delivery in the scene when he goes, checkmate. Spock, Kirk's like, sometimes in chess, it's just over. Checkmate. Kirk's like, I don't want to play chess. Bet you, bought, bet you thought it was chess. But it was I, poker! <laughs> As Bailey says, this is where Kirk's 20-pound balls come up. Because Kirk is like, you know what? I'm going to bluff this guy. Because Baylock's already yeah. scanned the ship. He's read everything on their database. That's how he knew about their Earth minutes. And how he knew to speak English. And so he is sitting there, not trying to talk to them. And Kirk says, oh, just so you know, uh, we have a lot of respect for life, so we have to warn you. That in our ship, we've got this thing called uh, Corbomite. Makes it up on the spot, which I love. So we got this thing called Corbomite in all our ships. And if you try to blow us up, we'll actually blow you up. We wanted to tell you that so that you don't blow up. But, you know, if you want to blow up, whatever. But hurry up and make a decision because you're starting to bore us. And he cuts the yeah. communication right off. It's the line that, like, I don't. we don't care if we die. But I don't know about you. It's just, it's so good. It's a great scene. That's the scene where Bail- where Spock says Balok reminds him of his father, and he and Scotty have the little back and forth about Spock's mom. Yeah. And then um, we have Bailey come back to the bridge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After he phenomenally snapped, by the way. I don't oh. know if we mentioned that, but he Huge breakdown. Off. You guys think you're toys, soldiers! Don't you know when you're about to die? <laughs> Which, again... Was not too badly delivered. No, I guess I thought that was excellent. By the way, it felt very believable. Yeah. Bailey is. I mean, <laughs> he's better than Mitchell. He's no Gary. I Mitchell. have a feeling that it's going to also be a while before we see someone quite as good as him. I think he actually did yeah. very well for himself. Mm-hmm. And so Kirk shows forgiveness and puts Bailey back in his station. Was that a good idea? It worked out. I so the ship was going to blow up in thirty seconds anyway. Yeah, yeah. it's not like it really matters. <laughs> it's the dignity of it. Yeah. To me, I think that's a big moment for Kirk. Yeah. And it shows a lot about Kirk that he's he's harsh when he has to be. Because mm-hmm. earlier in that episode, he dresses down a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. But then he's also the kind of captain who cares about his crew. Yeah. He values them as individuals. And he lets Bailey reclaim his dignity. And, and I think it shows that he respects the fact that Bailey changed himself. He, he grew as a, as, a, as a person. He got as a, as a crew member. Right? And so um, I thought that was a really cool moment as well. I love it. 
And Spock has that line where he says, a very interesting game, this poker. <laughs> because Balok's like, we've decided not to blow you up until we know more about this Corbomite that's not in your database. Can you tell us if you have Corbomite for real? Nope. <laughs> and Kirk says no and hangs up. I love it. <laughs> it was so good. Spock says, I think I'd like to learn poker. And McCoy says, maybe I'll teach you. Already starting to establish the very special banter that yeah. Spock and Bones will have throughout the rest of the show. Some great little sequence. Another great Bones moment. So Balak is not sure what he's going to do. And in between this, Yeoman Rand, once and for all, drops the proverbial atomic elbow on Yeoman Smith, proving that she's the best Yeoman of all time, because she brings a pot of coffee, which <laughs> Yeoman Smith never did. Even when the power's out in the galley, by the she way. She heats it up with a hand phaser. What a winner. That is a dedicated employee. She makes yep. sure that Captain Kirk has coffee, and he is so happy. He's <laughs> sipping that coffee cup for like the next ten minutes. Hand phaser. Dedication. Goodness. Take that, Yeoman Smith. Rand... MVP Yeoman of all it's time. Smith. <laughs> it's Smith. Walking freezer unit. <laughs> Nobody is going to miss Smith. <laughs> Except Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, who was, again, instrumental in hiring Grace Lee Whitney to play Yeoman Smith. Mm -hmm. He said he was looking for a slightly more mature... He's, I think the word he used was sexy rather than bubbly and cute. That's a direct quote. <laughs> oh, that's that's opposite to the direction I'd go, but hey. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, so she heats up coffee like a boss. And then this is the only part of the episode that I thought dragged a little bit. Actually, this feeds directly into what I was saying with the countdown. Up until this point, they have been announcing the time that they're yeah. in during the countdown. Yeah. So it helped you manage your expectations. Here, this whole tractor beam sequence is meant to be, it's implied and stated to be a drawn-out sequence, but you have nothing to gauge how long it's going to be, but more importantly, how much longer it's going to last. So it seems like something that shouldn't be taking an awful long period of time, but even though it's shorter than the actual runtime of the first countdown, it feels a longer. Because up to this point, I thought the episode was very well-paced. Yeah. And fortunately, this is not a long sequence, but it was the first time I was actively thinking, how much longer is on this? Because you really sometimes you really feel those 50 minutes rather than the 45. Yeah. Because they decide, we're not going to blow you up just in case, Corbin Mike. We're going to tow you over to this planet, maroon you there, then we'll blow your ship up. Because the little ship, the little tiny like saucer comes out of the big ship, and the big ship flies away, and the little saucer tows them. And he says, oh, by the way, don't try to blow the saucer up, because we'll also blow you up. And it tows them for a while again. That's the only part that kind of drags for a little bit. It says several hours pass um, after the break. I don't remember how many. Because Kirk is waiting for him to let his guard down. Well, they're gradually up. increasing their power resistance to the, to the tow. That's part of their plan. Is that they're gradually trying to overload the capacity of the tow ship by resisting the tow. And their engines are heating. And they're counting on the others to get first. And so when the when something finally starts happening, which does jar it out, it's only a few minutes where the episode really feels like it's slowed, because then they start to overload the engines, and the ship rocks back and forth as they start to shake themselves free, and we have several sequences of crewmen slamming from one wall to the other in a hallway, and they put Vest Guy right in the very front, closest to the camera, Beautiful. so you can really see that fisherman's vest, it's got like 18 pockets on it, they've got that classic Star Trek thing where they slam back and forth, Kirk is leaning, fishing. he's leaning back in his chair, and let me tell you, some people act those shots better than others, <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna be straight here, that there's some people true. in those shots who are like, 
Oh no. <laughs> and there's other people who are like, <laughs> like ah! Ah! And they're like flying and throwing them against all over. And, yeah. and you're like, oh, Michelle, yeah. Consistency, my favorite forgotten direction. Michelle Nichols always sells those scenes. Every time you look at the back, Uhura flies halfway across the bridge. She is working her butt off out there. And then Sulu will just kind of be like, and I love George Takei, but I've never seen him shake very hard on Star Trek. <laughs> so then they do it. They break free by shaking themselves back and forth, and they overload Baylock's engine first. And the ship kind of goes poof, poof. Mm-hmm. And it starts to burn out. Uhura gets a distress call from Baylock's tiny ship where its life support is off and everything like that. Kirk, again, shows another big Kirk moment where he says, you know what, even though this guy almost murdered us, we should go save his life because that's what we're out here to do. We're here to make friends. We're here to promote peaceful yeah. cooperation. We're not killers. Well, they wanted to prove them wrong in the first place, so this is the perfect opportunity to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Then this is the only part where I feel the script is weak because he says, hey, Bailey, uh, why don't you come with McCoy and me for no reason? That's, yeah. to me, the only real script problem. And I don't care that much because there's literally five minutes left and we got to wrap the plot you up. You know, though, I, I think that there's a certain reality in which Kirk is, is trying to train him up and, like, get him those experiences that are going to help move him into comfort and be an actually That's effective true. space explorer. Um, you have to have your first encounter with the unknown. And now that they've proven that they're essentially dealing with the most vulnerable one possible, I mean, there's very few safer situations to try out someone for their first time. Um, you know what? You've convinced I, me. You've changed. You've changed. You've changed my mind on that. There is no script problem in the Corbin Mike maneuver. I'm wrong. Okay, Ethan's right here. About I'll, that. I'm going to give you a different one though. Who brings their doctor on their very first boarding to a ship? I know that the person might need medical attention, but you never send your doctor in the first wave of boarding. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. And you're going to be sad about every episode of Star Trek ever because McCoy always comes, <laughs> which is a terrible idea. I'm not saying that it doesn't work for the show. I'm just saying that. He's the chief the medical officer. The logic behind it is a little lack. The logic behind it is bad. Just saying. I mean, who sends their captain on the first away mission? Every that, episode. That's true, too. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah, Kirk has the power to override that himself. Kirk. Bones, no excuse. In most episodes, it'll be Kirk, the captain. His first officer, Mr. Spock, and their chief medical officer, <laughs> Lieutenant Commander McCoy, <laughs> will be part of the landing party almost without fail. <laughs> there's a bad idea. There's an episode where Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Sulu, Chekhov all beam down to the same planet. If they die, the Enterprise is screwed. Uhura so will have to take command because she's like seventh in line and fly them <laughs> out of there. But that's neither here nor there. Spock has this great, very Vulcan moment where he's like, why are we risking our life to save this guy? That's not very logical. And Kirk tells the crew, look, I know what this is about, but there is a life over there. Yeah. And we owe it to all forms of life to try and save them. Great little Star Trek message yep. about the sanctity it's of life. It's just the fact yeah. that character seen through actions speak louder than your words. And that's a quote from me. So um, I just like seeing people, like character development being shown. And seeing that Kirk actually has that capacity for compassion and addition to leadership. That's what's going to set humanity apart in contacting alien races. So you sort of see a little bit, not only of why he was chosen to to captain a ship, but more specifically why he was chosen to captain this ship. Hmm. I'm really excited for you guys to meet Kirk. Like, I know Kirk and not like the cartoon caricature of Kirk that exists. I think this is a great episode for that right out of the gate to show you that Kirk can yeah. stand toe-to-toe with Picard as a great yeah. captain. Yeah. I thought it, it was really good. We get the transporter room, and for the first time, there's a dedicated transporter station mm. with a dedicated prop built for the transporter with the little sliders and all that good stuff. 
Uh, but there is one thing in this scene that I absolutely hate, and it's those stupid belts that they put on with the phaser and the little leather belts. Those will be gone pretty soon, don't worry. They just clip their phasers and their communicators to their pants for the rest of the show, and it looks much, much better. He tells them to bend low, which is a little bit funny, because the ship is really cramped on the other side. You don't want to materialize your head into a bulkhead. So they get in this position, and they beam over. We only have about three minutes left, and so I think this is the part where we're going to start to get a little divisive. I'm not hugely fond of it, but I don't think it's enough to bring down the episode. Yeah. So they go over to the little ship that pulled away from the big part earlier. And they find out that Baylock was a puppet, which I think that is a great That part's fine. That's yeah, great. And that makes the fact that he looked like a puppet and the screen was blurry. And Squidward. And he does look like Squidward. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then they find what Baylock really looks like. And Baylock is an ugly baby with giant eyebrows. You mean a space oval child? <laughs> it's a young Clint Howard who is an ugly, ugly baby. <laughs> with, like, caterpillar eyebrows. This is so on. bad. I'm sorry, but I don't like vaguely human child-looking aliens, like, to the point of burn it with fire. Like, I just, like, I'm sorry, my gut reaction is, I was kicking in so hard with this episode, I did not like and his alien design. he is so clearly dubbed over by an adult. That yeah. voice coming out of that body was so, so I, bad. Okay, I will give the kid credit for, like, being pretty on point with his, like, mouth movements, though. He's doing the best he can, yeah. but it is obviously dubbed. Yes. They were going to shave his head, but six-year-old Clint Howard and his dad said no, so he's wearing a bald cap. <laughs> they put the eyebrows on him so he wouldn't look like a six-year-old kid. <laughs> it doesn't really work. <laughs> then he has them drink a drink together that is, in real life, grapefruit juice, which Clint Howard hated. So <laughs> they made a six-year-old drink a juice that he hated, and he had to act like he loved it, which is pretty hard acting for a six-year-old. So yeah. credit what credit is due. The saddest part about all this, though, is that the original plan was to have him played by Michael Dunn. Michael Dunn is a dwarf actor who was going to go on and play a character, Alexander, in Plato's Stepchildren. He's very, very good. Mm. He's one of the, probably, in my opinion, he's a top ten guest star on Star Trek. And he could have played Balog. And it's like, oh! Instead of creepy child. They wouldn't have had to dub his voice! <laughs> which is the most distracting yeah. part. That would have been nice. but. And, and then we find out through, um, through Balog that he actually is sort of different than you'd expect. He is testing the people who come to visit him, but he wants people to come to visit him. Uh, yeah. And that, to me, is unfortunately the Achilles heel for the Corbomite maneuver as a maneuver, not as an episode. The episode was fine. But I think the integrity of the Corbomite maneuver is somewhat compromised by the reveal at the end that he never wanted to kill them in the first place. Because you get this wonderful climax, you get the idea of, like, we're bluffing each other, and in the end, what you really come down to is he didn't want to kill them. So there was no true bluffing. Even the bluff itself is sort of revealed to be not as good as you initially thought it was in the beginning. He has one of the adv most advanced spaceships on the planet. He could tell the moment his probe was destroyed. And one of the things about the probe was that the probe had sent, it out, sent out radiation that Kirk himself described as being harmful to them and their ship, which would have been an attack. And yet the, pro the probe had to be destroyed by phasers, which reveals that there wasn't any corbomite on board. So they were leaning pretty heavy on the probe not sending any data to the ship, 
which if you're dealing with a civilization more advanced than you, probably not the best decision to make. And second, the actual maneuver didn't end up outsmarting anyone. I will say, though, the, the probe wasn't manned. So even if they, even if the Corbomite, in quotations, was real, um, it wouldn't have affected that, like, anyone on that sh- probe because there's no one on that. And I think Kirk says they had to be shot. Like, he says, when you shoot us with your lasers, it'll blow. Because if the rate, hypothetically, if Corbomite was real, it sounds like it's a reactive to, like, a torpedo or a phaser and not to, like, lethal radiation, which wouldn't really affect the ship itself. Like, it's a little bit of a stretch. But I guess to me, I, I, see, your point. I see your point. Yeah. To me, I like this episode so much that the last three minutes don't really torpedo it to me. Um, the concept of an alien testing humanity is very, 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 very popular on Star Trek. We'll see it way too many times. And in fact, I, I, I would even say that I would love this episode a lot if they had actually committed to like, yeah, I kill people who don't pass my tests. But they didn't. Mm. At the very end, he was like, okay, oh, I'm just waiting that. for people to visit me. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that that took a little bit of the severity. You're just a lonely man, That's because we cut 30 seconds too soon after Kirk and McCoy leave, and he goes, so, Bailey, you want to see my collection of human heads? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know anything about this guy, and they then leave... Bailey freaks out again. <laughs> they leave Bailey behind. So I won't say it's a bad episode. I'm just saying that there were... The very end of it wasn't thought through in regards to the previous part of the show, and it, otherwise, the setup's pretty fine. Question: Does Bailey ever come back? No. So Kirk <laughs> left him there for good. Yes. We okay. never see Bailey ever again. <laughs> we do see Clint Howard again uh, playing a character like every other Star Trek show. There's at least one episode that Clint Howard is in, which is a bizarre resume. He plays a Ferengi in Enterprise. He is like a background like guy in an episode of Deep Space Nine. He's in all these Star Trek episodes, but Bailey never returns. So he says, Baylock says he's lonely, and that he knows he can trust them now because they came to save him, even with his risk themselves. That he's like, I guess like myself, you're pretty peaceful, and I want someone to talk to because even though I'm an advanced alien, despite looking like a six-year-old Earth child, I get bored. And I want to talk to someone, and Kirk's like, could we find a volunteer for that, Mr. Bailey? And Bailey's like, yeah, sounds great, I'll do it. And then at the very end, he does have this great little line where he says, you know, Kirk, you and I are a lot of like. Um, we're both very proud of our ships. And that's a nice closing line. And then my final notes I wrote about this episode were Clint Howard is a very ugly baby. <laughs> so I agree with Ethan to an extent that the last three minutes are not great. Mm-hmm. It does feel rushed compared to the rest of the episode. It does feel to a degree. Now, I say this as someone who's a huge fan of the series as a whole and have a little bit more of the mythos to fall back on than, than you two guys who are going through for the first time. Yeah. To me, the idea of something that seems like a threat that we don't understand but it turns out to be friendly is very Star Trek. That's very much the mythos of Star Trek. There's an episode coming up that I think does this better than this episode, and it's maybe my favorite episode of the whole show. There's two episodes in my mind, two or three, that battle for the top spot, and it's one of the ones coming up, Devil in the Dark with the Horda, if any of you watch, you know what I'm talking about. They do kind of the same thing in that episode, but the Horda's a cool monster and not Clint Howard with fake eyebrows on. <laughs> for me, I think, though, this is a very, very solid episode. So, yeah. But I wanted to quiz you guys on a few things, because there's a bunch of first things that happen in this episode. 
This is the first episode where Ahura says, Hailing frequencies open, sir. This is the first episode with the dedicated transporter pad. This is the first episode where the sickbay walls are blue instead of green, which is a huge improvement. Those green walls were awful. Never interior decorated with green. No. no. It, so, Ethan, you hated the sickbay set in the pilot. Oh. Is oh, it better yeah. in this one? Yes. It actually looks like a functional sickbay in many regards. There's some extra equipment to make it a little more functional. There's not a... I didn't at least see the tap. Tap on. the wall. No more tap. <laughs> and as a fun fact, as an aside, Kirk is going to use the same bluff again in a later episode against the Romulans when he says the Enterprise has got a Corbin White bomb strapped on the inside in the deadly years in Season 2, which is a nice little throwback. Ah. He uses the same bluff when he's in uh, an emergency. So, can you guess some other first things that are in this episode? Other than McCoy, O'Hora, and Janus Rand. Well, you mentioned Spock's introduction of fascinating. Because I'm not expecting things that I should be looking for, it's hard to necessarily say, oh, this is the first, because it implies that there are going to be seconds and thirds and, da, 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 and repeated occurrences throughout the show. I, uh, though I did say earlier, to my credit, that I, I know that Bones' catchphrase is going to be something I'm going to have to watch. I'm a doctor, for. not a blank. Yes. This is the first episode to include pointed sideburns. On all of its male crew members. Wow. The sideburn, the kind of pointy sideburn, is a very uniform look for the men on the original show. Don't know why. I just did notice that. I did. I did not. This is the first episode where we get the bridge sound effects in the background. The very distinct bridge sound effect noises that we all love so very much. And this is, again, the first time the phasers are fired. A lot of, lot of external shots of the ship, too. Not that we Great didn't shots. have them in the other one, but Great this shots. really leaned on that. The, yeah. the Enterprise is, is gorgeous. It really is a very elegant ship design. Yeah. Uh, there's also an interesting little point that this is the only time Kirk identifies his ship as belonging to the United Earth. He says this is the United Earth ship Enterprise. This will never happen again. But overall, for being the first proper episode of the show... It comes out real strong, especially when you compare the fact that TNG's first real episode was The Naked Now, which I do like, but it's not great. So we are off to a great start with TOS. I hit their feet running. Great episode. So let's go around the table and give our grades on a... Oh, Forrest, but first, we have to talk about death count, Kirk shirt count, and Kirk yeah. romance count. There were no additional deaths in this one, so the death count remains at nine. There were no ripped shirts, and unfortunately, there are no substitutions for similarities. So even though Kirk is shirtless, it's not a destroyed shirt, um, and also no Kirk ladies. So although he's revealed that that could become a problem in the future. He's so. revealed that he is at least yeah. attracted to Rand, uh, <laughs> which will come up in a later episode. Yeah. But we'll get there when we get there. So Bailey, if you had to grade this episode on an A to F scale, with pluses mm-hmm. and minus included, what would you give the Corbin Lightman? Well... I enjoyed it more than the last episode, um, which I think I gave a B plus. You gave a B plus. Yeah. You both did. Uh, so I I don't want to be too generous, um, but it definitely was better. I found at least. Um, so I would probably give it an A minus. So so you so you're gonna go with an A minus. So very yeah. strong, Ethan. I feel like. My last review, I, I added a few too many meme points for the uh, um, shaking Palpatine-esque <laughs> death battle. And the, the high psych- and the psychic count. <laughs> and the psychic count. Um, don't get me wrong, it was a B-plus for that in certain regards. I'm, I'm 
honestly going to say, though, that while that was a Mimi B+, plus, Mimi B plus, probably should have been more of a B. This one, I feel, is like more of a true B+, plus, um, especially considering my personal distaste for human childlike aliens and my general disregard for the integrity of the Corbomite maneuver given the last three minutes. So I'm going to have to put this as like a true B+. Plus. And, and that almost seems unfair because I do love the degree to which it holds true to science fiction's premise of seeking out the unknown mm -hmm. and their own mission to seek and contact alien life. So you're going to find me pretty firmly stuck between the um, A- minus and B+, plus, only think because I don't think the B grade is fair. So but plus, I don't plus. think, but no, no, I actually say A minus minus. I don't think that the, um, that it's enough to drop it to a B in general, but I don't want to give it an A minus because I don't agree that it was quite that good. Well, I mean, there's going to be 80 episodes of this, of this show alone. So at some point, something's going to get the same rating. Yeah. So A minus for Bailey, B plus for Ethan. So the truth is, folks, I've been wrestling all day whether to give this episode an A minus or an A. I love Corbomite Maneuver. I think it's potentially one of the ten best episodes of the show. I love everything about it except potentially the last three minutes. I was gonna lean. I was leaning on the A minus because of some of the weaknesses with Bailey, but then Ethan talked me out of it. But at the end of the day, the dubbed over baby voice for Clint Howard was a little too much. So I'm gonna give this episode a solid A minus. I think this is a fantastic episode, and I think if the last three minutes had been somewhat different. I think if we had had Michael Dunn, as was originally intended, instead of Clint Howard, this would have been a solid A episode. For me, A-, minus, very good episode. So join us next week, where we will be discussing the next episode in the series, Mud's Women. Now, Corvo Might Maneuver is widely regarded among the fan base as being one of the best episodes of the original series. That's not just my opinion. Mud's Women is a little more divisive, even when it came out. I like it. But I also haven't seen it in over a year, so we'll see if that still holds true. So if you're listening to us on iTunes, please give us a rating and a like to help support the show. If you're listening on YouTube, a like and a comment is always appreciated. That oh, helps. no, we're those guys. No! It helps bump up the channel so that more people can hear our Star Trek opinions. And from all of us here, smash that like button. Don't forget to hit the bell icon. Ding, ding. From all of us here at Boldly Going, live long and prosper. We'll see you all next week.